Welcome to the Living Parables Podcast, where we uncover spiritual truth and lessons God has given us through His Word and our own life stories. I am Nate, your host. To all listeners tuning in the show today, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I appreciate all of you, and now let us begin. Well, I'd like to welcome you back to a brand new week, brand new episode, and a brand new book study series which I am so thrilled to be doing once again. Last week, we did a very, very short book study series on the book of Jude, in which, as you know, it's only one chapter, so it wasn't that hard. But nonetheless, it was such a very enriching and powerful book study, and Jude is such a wonderful book. But now we're going to move into another direction. Today, we're going to be starting the book of Ephesians. And the book of Ephesians was a letter that is addressed to the church in the city of Ephesus, which is the capital of the Roman province of Asia or Asia Minor, which is now modern day Turkey. The letter was written from prison in Rome, which you can find that in Acts 28, 16 through 31, sometime between 60 to 62 AD. This was one of the prison epistles. As you know, we just did Colossians. But also while Paul was in prison, he wrote Philippians and Philemon as well. A couple of things about Ephesians that I want you to really grasp. The first three chapters that we're going to be going over in the upcoming weeks. The first three chapters are theological, which they emphasize New Testament doctrine, whereas the last three chapters are practical and focused on Christian behavior. And so with that being said, let's go ahead and get started. Ephesians chapter 1, we're going to be going through verses 1 through 14. Let's go ahead and start reading. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to the saints who are at Ephesus and who are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself, according to the kind intention of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, which he freely bestowed on us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished on us. In all wisdom and insight, he made known to us the mystery of his will, according to his kind intention, which he purposed in him, with a view to an administration suitable to the fullness of the times, that is, the summing up of all things in Christ, things in the heavens and things on the earth. In him also we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to his purpose, who works all things after the counsel of his will, 
to the end that we who were the first to hope in Christ would be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is given as a pledge of our inheritance, with a view to the redemption of God's own possession, to the praise of his glory. I know that was a lot to take in, but let's go ahead and go back to the very first verse and start breaking this down. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. Let me just start out by saying this. It's all of God's will. It's God's will right now that you're listening to this podcast. It's God's will right now that you are at the job you are at. It's God's will who is in your circle. And we can keep going and going and going, but we're not going to. It was God's will that Paul was an apostle of Christ Jesus. Paul, if you remember, was a persecutor of the church and of those who are believers in Jesus Christ. But it was his will that Paul would be set apart for the sake of Christ to be a preacher to the Gentiles. Now let's keep going. To the saints who are at Ephesus and who are faithful in Christ Jesus. Now we always have to keep scripture in context here. So this letter was written to the saints at Ephesus. And I want to focus on the end of verse 1, who are faithful in Christ Jesus. Faithful just means loyal. And it means loyalty to the end, no matter what. God gives us faith to endure all things to the very end. Verse 2, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. God freely extends his grace, his favor to us to be brought near to us. That is such a blessing. And in verse 2, it says, God our Father. God is a father to the fatherless. He is there when people fail us, that we trust, that we love, and they, they abandon us, they turn their backs on us. God would never do that. And he will never do that. And that is such a promise. Verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed here means well spoken of. And this only used in reference to God. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. So again, God has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Now, this isn't talking about spiritual superpowers here, but rather the good things God has pronounced for our benefit. For example, divine election. He's chosen us. He makes us holy. He makes us blameless. He adopts us as children. He makes us righteous. And he views us and looks upon us as a beloved child. That is such a blessing. 
Verse 4, just as he chose us in him. God chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world. And what a promise and what a thought that is, that God would choose a nobody like me to be a son of God. Before the world was made by the power of just his word, he chose me, but he also chose you. What a blessing that is. By the way, some people think that money and having a bunch of wealth and fancy cars and new phones and going on jets, they think that's a measure of success and blessing by God. But those things I just stated, those are the true blessings of God. And God is not looking to make you rich. You might be blessed with wealth. That could possibly be. I'm not saying that wealth is a terrible thing. But with wealth come many trials and tribulations. Let's look at the last part of verse 4. That we would be holy and blameless. Let's go back to the very beginning of verse 4. Just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless. So... I want to focus on holy and blameless for a minute. Let's focus focus on holy. It means the like like the likeness of nature with the Lord, set apart for righteousness and also sacred. And what does blameless mean? Well, obviously without blemish. I want you to think of a white carpet for a minute here. I know a carpet's not too popular nowadays, but say you had a white carpet and you had some grape juice that you were drinking and you spilt it on that white carpet. Now, that's going to leave a blemish that's not going to get out anytime soon. White and grape juice don't mix. And so if that is spilt on there, that will leave that blemish and it'll always be there. I know this because I have some blemishes in my gigantic rug that we have in our house because of that very reason. But he makes us without blemish so that we can stand right before God, which is of itself is truly amazing. Now, let's go back to this, that we would be holy and blameless before him in love, starting in verse five, in love. I'm going to stop there. This is not a brotherly love here. This is not a friendship type of love here. This is not a romanticized type of love. This is a faithful, commitment, lofty, moral nature, and strong character type of love. The agape love found in 1 Corinthians 13. That is the true definition of love. So in that love, so 1 Corinthians 13 love, in that love, he predestined us. Now, some of you are probably wondering right now, what does predestination mean? Predestination means that God foreordained something. He marked out beforehand. So he chose us before the foundation of the world. 
Okay, so he predestined us. He foreordained us to adoption as sons. And it doesn't just stop there. Through Jesus Christ to himself. It's, it's through Christ. Now, let me say something here about predestination. God doesn't owe us anything. Let's make that perfectly clear. He doesn't owe us anything. God chose to save us, and it's not a situation where it's unfair because God, once again, doesn't owe us anything. God doesn't owe us salvation. And here's the thing. As people, we don't know who is predestined to believe in Christ and be saved. And many will get upset because people think that it's not fair that God chooses some and not others. Well, here's the thing. I firmly believe that God draws everybody at some point. But we are the ones that have to make that choice. Either we respond in faith to him or we respond with doubt and we walk away from him. Those are the only two options. So again, I just believe very strongly that everybody has a chance. Now, do I think that everybody's going to be saved? Absolutely not. Because God has chosen the few. And so if you're hearing this right now, God is drawing you into himself. But it's up to you what you do with it. And most of the time, people will not reach out because of X, Y, and Z reasons. And those are probably not good reasons, the reason why they don't reach out. But he chose us to be adopted into his family as sons through Jesus Christ to himself. Now, according to what? According to the kind intention of his will. If you are a saved person, it is the result of his loving kindness and his sovereign will. Verse 6, to the praise of the glory of his grace. And what does grace mean? It means undeserved favor or blessing. Let's keep going in verse 6. Which he freely bestowed on us in the beloved. He freely bestowed. He it's it's gifted. There's no work, there's no it's not merited. It's all of grace. We can't handle that because everything is works-based to earn our way. So that's why it's so contrary to our fleshly nature, because everything is of works. If you do this, you'll get this. If you work hard, you'll get this. If you go through this class, you'll earn a degree. But this is freely bestowed on us in the beloved. Now, the beloved here is capitalized. That's talking about Christ. So, which he freely bestowed on us in the beloved, or you could say on us in Christ. Here's verse 7. This was the theme for Colossians. In him. Remember, in him, in him, in him, with him, with him. Verse 7. In him we have redemption through his blood. What does redemption mean? That is a big, big word here. Redemption means release affected by payment of ransom to free a slave. 
And you have to ask yourself this question. Well, I don't remember being a slave to anybody. So I think, I think I'm good. Here's the problem with that. We're going to go to John, the eighth chapter, verse 34. Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits sin is the slave of sin. It doesn't get any crystal clearer than that. If you sin, you are a slave to sin. You are shackled and your destination is eternal judgment and there's no escape in it. You are hopeless. You are devoid of hope. And yet, Christ came to set the captives free. We have redemption through his blood. When Jesus Christ shed his blood on the cross, and he said, it is finished, God was pleased with that sacrifice. The wrath of God was satisfied. The wages of sin is death, correct? Romans 6, 23. Well, that wage, that penalty, that payment was paid for in full by Christ through his blood. We were ransomed by sin. The only way that you can buy Nate back is through blood. Because God is just. He does say the wages of sin is death. That is absolute. So, Jesus Christ came to pay the penalty of sin on our behalf so that we wouldn't have to die and suffer the wrath of God. He did both of those things for us. Now, let's go back to verse 7 again. In him we have redemption through his blood. Here we go. The forgiveness of our trespasses. The only means of forgiveness of our sins and righteousness is through Christ's death and resurrection. According to the riches of his grace. That, that's why he did it. Because he's, he's rich in grace. He has surpassing riches of grace. He is abundant in grace. Verse 8, which he lavished on us. That word lavished means exceed, overflow, abound. Which means he overflows with grace to us. Which he lavished on us in all wisdom and insight. He made known to us the mystery of his will. According to the kind intention which he purposed in him with a view to an administration suitable to the fullness of the times, that is, the summing up of all things in Christ. Christ is the summation of all things on earth and heaven. He is the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. Let's keep going. In Christ, things in the heavens and things on the earth. In Him, there we go again, in Him, also we have obtained an inheritance having been predestined according to his purpose, who works all things after the counsel of his will. So, verse 11, we have a, 
attained an inheritance. That's through Christ alone. Not materialistic things, but something greater, which is heaven. Salvation, which is imperishable, unspoiled, unfading, and reserved for us. So we're going back here to verse 11, kind of in the middle here. Having been predestined according to his purpose. God chose us for a purpose, his own perfect purpose. And what an honor that truly is. Who works all things, not, not just a few things, all things after the counsel of his will. God is immutable, which means he is unchangeable. And his will stands firm forever. Now, verse 12, to the end that we who were the first to hope in Christ would be to the praise of his glory. So, we live for the glory of God. That's what we do. We live for the glory of God. And here's the thing. Everything we do, say, speak, think, and act should be focused on, does this bring glory to God? Does what I say bring glory to God? And what is what I'm thinking bring glory to God? Do all those things do that? Verse 13. In him you also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation... Having also believed, you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise. So, let's go back to the beginning of verse 13. You have in him once again. It's in him, in him, in him, in him, in him. We always have to stay in Christ. We have to be disciplined. We have to pray and ask God to keep us in Christ and keep us according to his will. And we must be diligent in prayer, constantly asking him those things. And you know, it's funny, since we're talking about that, that's why 1 Thessalonians speaks so true to us, because it says, pray continually. Or some of your translations say, pray unceasingly. So we have to be doing that, because it should be our prayer that we remain in the will of of God. We need to remain in his will. We need to not only remain in his will, but we also need to do his will. We need to seek after him with all of our heart, with all of our mind, with all of our soul, and all our strength. We must be doing those things because our hope is in Christ. Everything that we have is in Christ. Now, I want to stop for a minute here because we're, we're getting close to the end here for verse 14, but I'm going to stop for a minute. I want to talk about something that's been pressing on my heart lately. What is this life? What are we doing here? And why are we wasting so much time? Those are some three hard questions to ask. I have to ask them. Again, the first one, what are we doing down here? I mean, what are, we, what are we doing down here on this earth? Is it supposed to be us just living for ourselves, living for the moment, 
jumping from thrill to thrill, pleasure to pleasure? I don't think so. And many people have done that. And what has the result been? Well, the result hasn't been that great. And so it's hard to understand why people do the things that they do. How many of us have double lives where we're one way here and then another place we're here? It's hard to grasp that. It's hard to comprehend that people do those things, yet they still do. People live double lives. And here's what happens. Outside of Christ, sin, once it gets in to your heart, it will not be released until Christ sits on the throne of your heart. Now, we wrestle with sin as believers. I'm not saying that we will never struggle with sin and that only sinners struggle with that and they're going to go to hell. What I'm trying to say is that sin, if you let it master you, will eat you alive and destroy you. It will consume you and take over you. And the only thing that you'll be focused on is, again, 1 John 2.16. You hear me say it all the time. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. Those are the big umbrellas of other sins that we what we deal with. I mean, think of the lust of the flesh for a minute. I mean, our world is completely fixated on the flesh. I mean, you just take a look at some of these music videos that are out there, and it basically it's it's pornography. And it leaves little to the imagination. Not that your imagination should go there in the first place. But my point is that we can't just sit idly by as Christians anymore and and let these things go. Now, I'm not talking about rioting. I'm not talking about protesting. But it starts with the home. We have to tell our kids that these things are not appropriate. We have to tell them that what they're doing and what they're seeking after is not the right things. We always must be pursuing God. We must always be pursuing Christ and his heart and his promises and desires. We must be doing those things. But what happens is, is we get so busy and we get so caught up with things. And what happens? We end up passing out on the couch and our kids are watching YouTube videos on our phones or their phones. And their mind is being corrupted by the things of this world. Yet if we're passed out on the couch, we can't we can't stop them from doing much of anything. And trust me when I tell you, life does get hard. I understand life does get hard. Sometimes we just go about things and we're we have all these things going on. For example, a few weeks ago I had like two or three appointments. One for my eyes and one for the dentist, which, yay for the both of those. And, you know, by the time I know it, it was going to be time to go to bed. And I don't get a ton of sleep anyway, but those those things start stacking up. And so it that's what led me to that question. Like, what, what are we doing down here? 
I mean, is all there is to life is working nine to five, collecting those checks, getting money in the bank account, you know, stacking up that 401k, getting that retirement ready. And then when it's time, finally time when you're really old, then retiring. I just, I just, I can't sit here and say that this is all there is to life because I know it's not. And I'm not asking the question, what are we doing down here for? As in, I don't know the answer. I'm asking it for you to help me out. I'm saying I'm coming at it from maybe from a worldly perspective because there are certain people that are asking that question right now. What are we doing down here? What's what's going on? Why are we doing these things? And the truth is the world is getting darker and darker by the hour. It's not by days anymore. It's not by weeks. It's not by months. It's not by years. But it's getting worse by the day, even by the minute. I mean, we're so deep into sin and we're so caught up with self that Christ just gets pushed off to the side. And he deserves the preeminence. He deserves first place. Nothing less than first place. Yet, a lot of times what we do is we just casually keep going on and we keep living our lives and we wonder why we spend most of our time spinning our tires trying to figure out what's going on. Now, even to the Christian, some of us can get very, very caught up in worldly things. Politics. It's easy to get... It's easy to get caught up in politics. And one of the things that gets people off kilter is that they mix religion and politics together. Now, I'm not throwing the word religion out there um, the right way. What we believe is not a religion. It's a relationship with Christ Jesus, our Lord. That is the true religion. Yet that word is thrown out there like it's, it, these, well, religion's for those people that need a emotional crutch because they really can't handle stuff on their own. That's not what this is about. It's not what this is about at all. A relationship with Christ is the absolute best thing that you could ever do in your whole entire life. A relationship with Christ is like none other. And here's the thing. It's through faith. It's that grace through faith, which we'll get to God willing soon. But I, I wanted to stop there for a minute because in verse 13, it says, In him you also, after listening to the message of truth. Think about that for a minute. The message of truth. So the message of truth means that the God-revealing gospel of Jesus Christ must be heard and believe to bring salvation. So I want to turn real quick to Romans 10, 17. It says, For faith comes from hearing, and hearing by the word of Christ. You have to hear the word first to start having faith. Now, I would also say this, that faith is a gift and a work of God. And so when you're hearing the word, you have two choices. You're either going to have faith that it's true or you're going to doubt and believe that it's 
false. It's, it's not that complicated. And yet we make things complicated. But listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation. And then moving on from there, it says, Having also believed, you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is given as a pledge of our inheritance, with a view to the redemption of God's own possession, to the praise of his glory. Now, how do you know if you have the Holy Spirit living in you? Am I saved? The answer is dependent upon your desires. Are your desires for the world or are they of God's desires? So what should happen is your desires of the world fade and God's desires become your passion. And those passions include loving God, hating your own sin, ongoing repentance, love for the word, love for the saints, love for your enemies, devoted to prayer, longing to know Christ intimately. And the list goes on and on. But in verse 13, you were sealed in him. There's in him again. Sealed there means ownership. Authorized by validating as a believer for the salvation in the Holy Spirit. You were, we're sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise. Who, verse 14, is given as a pledge of our inheritance. The word pledge there, that's a large down payment which guarantees the balance, the full purchase price. He is the pledge of our inheritance. He is a down payment. He is a deposit that guaranteeing of what's to come with a view to the redemption of God's own possession. I'm going to take you to two scriptures in Corinthians in just a moment. But I want to talk to you once again about redemption. We were slaves of sin. We were in the slave market of sin. And that was going to be our eternal destiny. Is we were going to be in the slave market of sin until... We pass on and we experience the judgment of God and the wrath of God in hell. Yet again, before the foundation of the world, he chose us in him. And what did he do? He bought and paid for our freedom. That doesn't mean that we're free to do whatever we want to do. That means... We are free from the bondage of sin. We are freed from the penalty of sin. That's the first step. So, when we are saved, when we are justified, we are saved immediately from sin's penalty. Then we move on to sanctification which we are saved progressively from sin's power. And then ultimately at the end, 
glorification, we are saved completely from sin's presence. And we did a three-part series on sanctification. So if you haven't checked that out yet, I would gladly encourage you and highly encourage you to do that. But going back to this as we start to conclude here, is the Holy Spirit, God the Father, and Jesus Christ our Lord, our redemption, our salvation, is a triune work that is supernatural and powerful and is completely out of our hands. The only part that is in our hands is when we put our trust and faith in Christ, God draws us in. We hear the word, which we found in Romans 10, 17. I'll read it one more time. So faith comes from hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. So we're drawn in. We're hearing the word of Christ. And then we put our trust and faith in Christ. And then, then once we do that, we are saved. Then we start to obey. Then we get baptized. Then we start diligently studying the scriptures and start start our sanctification process. But once again, we are redeemed from the slave market of sin. Because at the end of verse 14, with a view to the redemption of God's own possession. Now, just a few minutes ago, I said, I'm going to take you to two pieces of scripture in 1 Corinthians. So I want you to go with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 20. It says, For you have been bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body. And now I want you to turn to... 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 23, where it says, You were bought with a price. Do not become slaves of men. So, two times right there, we have read that we were bought with a price. Again, we were bought out of the slave market of sin. Sin had ransomed us. And here's what happened. Jesus Christ came and paid that ransom in full with his blood. And through that redemptive work, he set us free. So as we wrap up here, I need to ask you, are you saved? Are you sealed in the Holy Spirit? What divine miracle takes place in salvation is that God's own Spirit, His Holy Spirit, comes to indwell the believer and secures and preserves His eternal salvation.
And the sealing which Paul is speaking of also refers to an official mark of identification placed on a letter, contract, or other document. That document was thereby officially placed under the authority of the person whose stamp was on their seal. Four primary truths are signified by the seal. Number one, security. Number two, authenticity. Number three, ownership. Number four, authority. The Holy Spirit is given by God as his pledge of the believer's future inheritance in glory. There's nothing to fear. Salvation is completely in Christ. And here's the wonderful part. Because some people worry about, am I going to lose, can I lose my salvation? Am I going to lose it? Well, let me just say this. If salvation were at any point, any fraction relied on us to keep it, we would lose it. We would lose it. If salvation were any at any point dependent on us to keep it, we would lose it. Salvation is in Christ. He gives us a saving faith that will endure all things. No matter what happens, no matter the persecutions, if we were to lose our jobs, lose friends, lose our family members, health issues, whatever trial it would be, God's gift of saving faith and saving grace will sustain us and keep us until the very end. Says in scripture that God is mighty to save. Our salvation is completely in his hands. And he will never cast us out. He will never drive us away. But promise us to keep us, to never leave us, to never forsake us. And he gave. His spirit as a promise of what is to come. So what must we do? We must trust him. We have to trust him with all of our hearts and believe fully in every single promise that he makes, especially the promise of eternal life. Our whole lives depend on it. God is faithful. So we must be faithful back to him. So as we have finally concluded the first 14 verses of Ephesians chapter 1, I'm excited that we will continue this on. And so with that being said, I pray that the Lord blesses and keeps you and gives you peace. 
and everything is in Christ, with Christ, and for Christ. And until next time, God bless you, my friends.